Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Third Nephi, Chapter 11 Well, we have experienced a lot, vicariously, of course, with the Nephites and Lamanites who have survived all the calamity that began in Third Nephi, Chapter 8. And then, with these same people, we have experienced the wonder of hearing the voice of the Lord in Third Nephi, Chapters 9 and 10. Through this entire experience, Darkness and dreadful terrestrial groanings had prevailed, until, that is, the light of the morning finally returned in verses 9 and 10 of the previous chapter. And it came to pass that thus did the three days pass away, and it was in the morning, and the darkness dispersed from off the face of the land, and the earth did cease to tremble, and the rocks did cease to rend, and the dreadful groanings did cease, and all the tumultuous noises did pass away. And the earth did cleave together again that it stood, and the mourning and the weeping and the wailing of the people who were spared alive did cease, and their mourning was turned into joy, and their lamentations into the praise and thanksgiving unto the Lord Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. So this is the point at which we left off in the previous chapter, before moving into Mormon's commentary. Now as we begin this new chapter, 3 Nephi chapter 11, We pick back up with the storytelling narrative, and we wonder what will come next for these people. While their mourning has turned into praise, they are also left in rubble and ruin. The very ground they stood on had proven its impermanence. This would have been doubly apparent as the first rays of morning light began to illuminate their broken landscape. So what will come next in their story? Is it time for these people to reflect upon the wondrous things that they have seen and heard, to bury their dead, and pick up the pieces of their broken civilization and move on as the few survivors who remain? Well, yes. And there will be a restructuring of society. It will begin actually with a restructuring of the church, which we will see at the end of this chapter. But this new and final section of Mormon's abridgment, as we start 3 Nephi chapter 11, will really focus on a rebuilding of a different kind, the kind which is a sure foundation, as Helaman put it, because of the rock upon which ye are built. It is a sure foundation whereon if men build, they cannot fall, and a foundation that the Savior himself will soon describe at the end of this chapter as his rock. Verily, verily, I say unto you that this is my doctrine, and whoso buildeth upon this buildeth upon my rock, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against them. This doctrinal foundation, then, will reorient these people to the most solid bedrock possible, and in time their rebuilt society will flourish as well. 
They will live in a near-millennial state, in fact, for some 200 years to come. But before we come to that part of the story, let's return to the perspective of these people who have just beheld the light of the morning, whose loss and lamentation has been turned into joy. As Elder Nilly Maxwell once said, righteous sorrow and suffering carve cavities in the soul that will later become reservoirs of joy. Now that this morning has come for these people, something more fantastical than they could dare imagine is about to be beheld by their ears, then their eyes, and then their hands. 3 Nephi chapter 11 will describe the most anticipated event in the entire Book of Mormon. The source of the penetrating voice in chapters 9 and 10 will actually appear. He will be embodied in a glorious resurrected tabernacle modeling for us the gift of resurrection that he has freely given to each of us. Scripturally, there is nothing quite like the appearance of the Savior here in 3 Nephi chapter 11, although the New Testament does have similar elements. We will read that after a rare introduction from the Father himself, Jesus the Christ will descend from above. The people first mistake him as an angel, as verse 8 will tell us, and it came to pass as they understood, meaning they understood the voice of the Father, they cast their eyes up again towards heaven. And behold, they saw a man descending out of heaven, and he was clothed in a white robe, and he came down and stood in the midst of them, and the eyes of the whole multitude were turned upon him. And they durst not open their mouths, even one to another, and wist not what it meant. For they thought it was an angel that had appeared unto them. Well, then, this man who has descended will dispel all doubt as to his identity, just as he did when he spoke to the people in the darkness, saying, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. And that's in verse 10 of this chapter. And then, just as we would prayerfully hope if we were present on this occasion, the Savior provides the means for a personal interaction with each person present. How consistent this is with the Savior's personality, that he would take the time to do this on this occasion. Verses 13 through 15 will tell us, And it came to pass that the Lord spake unto them, saying, Arise, and come forth unto me, that ye may thrust your hands into my side, and also that ye may fill the prints of the nails in my hands and in my feet, that ye may know that I am the God of Israel and the God of the whole earth, and have been slain for the sins of the world. And it came to pass that the multitude went forth and thrust their hands into his side, and had filled the prints of the nails in his hands and in his feet. And this they did do, going forth one by one, until they had all gone forth, and did see with their eyes, and did feel with their hands, and did know of a surety, and did bear record, that it was he of whom it was written by the prophets that should come. Well, what a moment. Again, we can just imagine being present on this occasion, and what it would feel like to have our hearts burning within us, to borrow the language of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, as the Savior stood in our midst. Surely, the Savior's invitation for all to come to him one by one was the exact and earnest desire of their hearts in this moment. Had we been there, it would undoubtedly 
have been ours. Well, we could talk a great deal more about the significance and the symbolism of this occasion as the Son of Righteousness appeared to these Nephites with healing in his wings, to borrow a phrase from Malachi. If we think about the Savior's wings as his appendages, then we can see how these people were able to behold the tip of his wings, his hands, and the wounds thereon, thereby verifying his identity and beholding the damage incurred in his payment of their irreconcilable debt to justice. All of this forecasts the most anticipated event in our own lives, then. That is the message of this chapter. We, too, will see him face to face, one by one, just as the Nephites are able to do in this chapter. The day will come for us. Then we, too, will be able to behold the wounds that he incurred on our behalf. However, between now and then, it is possible for us to develop such an abiding faith in his reality that when that moment does come for each of us, we will know no better then that he is our Savior than we do right now. As Bruce R. McConkie poignantly expressed it in his final public address, I testify that he is the Son of the living God and was crucified for the sins of the world, Elder McConkie said. He is our Lord, our God, and our King. This I know of myself, independent of any other person. I am one of his witnesses, and in a coming day I shall fill the nail marks in his hands and in his feet, and shall wet his feet with my tears. But I shall not know any better then than I know now that he is God's Almighty Son, that he is our Savior and Redeemer, and that salvation comes in and through his atoning blood, and in no other way. What a thrill it is to finally be here as readers. We have come to Third Nephi, chapter 11. Well, this seminal chapter is arranged into 41 verses. It does begin with a head note, which we'll come back and read in a moment. And I've organized this chapter into the following sections. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, we can see a great multitude has gathered at the temple in Bountiful. So this is interesting to us because we know of the litany of cities that were destroyed. And the Savior listed them as that voice in the darkness in 3 Nephi chapter 9. Bountiful was not mentioned among those cities that were destroyed. So that appears to be a place that these people can gather to. And we also come to understand that that is where the temple is. Uh, So there's something very interesting in that. So Zarahemla is gone. It has been burned, as have these other great cities. So where do they go? They go to Bountiful, and they go to the temple at Bountiful. So having gathered there, these people converse about this Jesus Christ of whom the sign had been given, as will be told in this section. Now, in verses 3 through 4, a voice sounds. Now, the people have already heard a voice Uh, as it came through the darkness, and that voice identified itself as Jesus Christ. This voice, however, comes twice to them, and the text says that it came as if it came from heaven, and they understood it not. Now, whether that's that they understood the identity of the voice, or whether they actually understood what the voice was saying, we're not quite sure from the text, but it sounds twice, and they understand it not. Then, this same voice sounds for a third time, And we find in verses 5, 6, and 7 that the people understand it this third time, and they understand it as the voice of the Father, 
And he does this very scripturally speaking, very rare thing, where he introduces his beloved son. In verse 7, he'll say, Behold, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, in whom I have glorified my name, hear ye him. The people at this point have got to be incredulous. It would have been enough, I would think, in a lot of ways, to have heard the voice of the Savior already. Uh, that, that was already so utterly remarkable. And then we discover that far more is about to happen. So in verses 8 through 9, the multitude sees, as, as the verse says in verse 9, a man descending out of heaven, and he does so in a white robe, their best judgment at this point tells them that this is an angel. However, we'll discover in verses 10 and 11 that this quote-unquote man will introduce himself as Jesus Christ. He'll say in verse 10, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. Then he speaks of the bitter cup which he drank, and of course, he did so ever so recently. There's love and modest understatement, I almost think, when he, when he says, I've drank that bitter cup, because he could have added the phrase, in your behalf. So understandably, at this point, this multitude, in verses 12 through 15, simply falls to the earth. Uh, we've seen that reaction at other points in Scripture. But here they are in the presence of the Savior himself. They fall to the earth. Then the Savior invites them to do this thing, that only a Lord, an omnipotent God, who is also the personal Savior of each person present, could possibly do. He tells them to come forth unto me, as the text will say, and fill the prince in his hands and feet, and all do so one by one. So it'll be with great pleasure and honor to, to come back and, and, and to read that in detail. After this takes place, and we don't know how long that took, but we can imagine uh, each person having a, a, a moment of recognition as they're able to look into the Savior's eyes and verify his identity and feel the love emanating from him and uh, to some degree at least the, the recognition of the person that they dwelt with in the pre-earth life and worshipped there. So the multitude in verses 16 and 17, they cry Hosanna, and they do so with one accord. And we'll read some commentary on the meaning of Hosanna. Now that this has taken place, it's time to turn to the organizational side of things. And that's the very next thing to happen in this chapter. So the sequence of events in this chapter is really illuminating. Now that one by one, each person present has been acknowledged personally by the creator of the world. Uh, the Savior then calls Nephi forward. So he calls his prophet forward at this point. And as soon as he does, he speaks in terms of ordinances and covenants. He gives Nephi and others, as it says, the power to baptize. And he instructs them as to who and how to baptize. Now, it's not that Nephi hasn't been doing this previously. We were told that in the text. But this power is being given to him anew and with even more clarification. And it's after, of course, the Savior has wrought his atonement. So there are some things to think about there. So we'll get the details on that, and that'll take us all the way through verse 28. Then in verse 29, and extending through verse 30, really, the Savior will remind his followers who are present that his doctrine is not established through contention. 
So he's not exactly speaking of contention in a vacuum or in isolation. Uh, He's not talking about the act of arguing in and of itself, but he is connecting that concept with the establishment of doctrine. And uh, that's a very important insight for us. So we'll have lots of opportunity to return to that. Then the Savior does declare his doctrine as if to say, my doctrine is not established through the, the, the contending arguments of intelligent men. Instead, it's dispensed from above. It comes straight from me. Take it as it is and receive it. And so he does so. And in the final verses of this chapter, really uh, verses 31 through verses 41, he will indeed declare his doctrine. And he'll preface this by saying in verse 31, Behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, I will declare unto you my doctrine. He goes on to say things that can be uh, described as the doctrine of Christ and ends that exposition uh, in verse 39 by saying, I say unto you that this is my doctrine. So that would certainly be another way of saying this is the doctrine of Christ. And he says, Whoso buildeth upon this, buildeth upon my rock, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against them. Now we've talked about the doctrine of Christ in other contexts. Uh, It was first introduced to us as a phrase uh, and a concept by Nephi. I believe it was in 2 Nephi chapter 31. There a gate was referred to. It's a different gate than the one that the Savior is talking about here. There Nephi talked about a gate, a path, and a destination. And uh, it, it works very well to think of the doctrine of Christ in those terms, I think. And as we will notice as we read through it here, uh, that will also fit that particular model. And of course, waiting at the end of that path is the great tree of life, uh, the tree of exaltation. At the end of this chapter then, in verse 41, the next natural sequence will take place. The Savior will say, Go forth unto this people and declare the words which I have spoken unto the ends of the earth. So there's the order of things. He has appeared. Everyone heard his voice. He was first introduced by the Father. Everyone heard his voice. He then interacted personally with each individual present. Then he went to his prophet. He established ordinances and covenants. Uh, Because just as the people wanted to come to him one by one and see him in that moment, it is also their privilege one by one to yoke themselves to him through covenant. That is the thing that they would want the most. And so he facilitates that as well after seeing each of them personally one by one. So he turns to his prophet, uses the same uh, order that he has always used to allow people to link themselves to him one by one. And that is through covenants with him. And those covenants, of course, are ratified by specific ordinances. So he does this, and then he takes the time to declare his doctrine with great clarity And then at the end of that, tells those who he has so empowered to go forth unto the people and declare the words which he has spoken unto the ends of the earth. Let's return now to the beginning of this chapter for a reading. And let's begin with the superscript that appears at the very top of the page. Uh, This is in Mormon's words, and it says, Jesus Christ did show himself unto the people of Nephi as the multitude were gathered together in the land bountiful and did minister unto them, and on this wise did he show himself unto them. And then there's this italicized statement that came later as the book was compiled, saying, comprising chapters 11 through 26. So that can be our expectation that we will get the Savior's words 
during this section of the Book of Mormon. So we've made it. This unique and incredible section of the Book of Mormon is now ours to, to drink in the, the, the pure waters of doctrine and the words of the Savior that will come from this and the way that this experience will converge uh, and add to our experience and privilege of reading of the Savior uh, through the four Gospels in the New Testament and, and the account of his resurrected ministry in the book of Acts. Of this section, Ogden and Skinner, and they have classified this section as being particularly between 3 Nephi chapter 11 and 3 Nephi chapter 28, actually. They say in the 34th year, uh, which we learned of in 3 Nephi chapter 8, verses 2 and 5, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared and taught his people in ancient America. His teachings comprise in the English Book of Mormon 34 pages, and they are the most precious and valuable teachings in the most precious and valuable book in the world. I think before moving to verse 1, I'll also read the italicized summary that sits right under the heading chapter 11. It says, The Father testifies of his beloved Son. Christ appears and proclaims his atonement. The people fill the wound marks in his hands and feet and side. They cry, Hosanna. He sets forth the mode and manner of baptism. The spirit of contention is of the devil. Christ's doctrine is that men should believe and be baptized and receive the Holy Ghost, about A.D. 34. So now moving to verse 1, here is where this great multitude has gathered at the temple in Bountiful. And now it came to pass that there were a great multitude gathered together. So this is the first time we have some sense for how many people were saved because we know that many, many were destroyed in the cataclysmic storm of 3 Nephi chapter 8. Just how many were saved? Well, we can see for one thing that it was a great multitude. Later, we will be given a number as we move on in the text. But for now, we are to know that it is a great multitude. Of the people of Nephi, round about the temple which was in the land bountiful. And they were marveling and wondering one with another, and were showing one to another the great and marvelous change which had taken place. So this is really picking up from where, where we left off in the narrative in the previous chapter, where uh, the people uh, finished hearing the voice of the Savior, and the light of morning returned, and the, the great groanings of the earth ended. And then the light falls upon their landscape, and they see the marvelous change which has taken place. Uh, so great and marvelous are usually uh, positive descriptors, but in this case, it uh, awesome, wondrous, even terrible would have been the changes which had taken place in the landscape. And these were the people that were uh, granted um, survival during this period of time. Robert J. Matthews has written, Those who survived the tumult and witnessed these events were the more righteous ones. The wicked were slain in the destruction. After all these things had happened to them, they could not ever be casual or indifferent about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the true purpose of life. They were ready to see, hear, and participate in the personal ministry of Jesus, their Lord and Redeemer. Now we find most specifically in verse 2, and they were also conversing about this Jesus Christ, of whom the sign had been given concerning his death. So that seems right to us. Uh, these are the people that did have faith in Christ. Uh, to one degree or another, they were spared. And now that things have calmed down, they can see again, the mist of darkness has been removed, 
they can consider what has just happened. They have heard the voice of Jesus Christ, and he's spoken to them in very specific terms in uh, chapters 9 and 10. So they're relating that to the sign that had been given concerning his death. Now, coming into verse 3, a voice sounds from heaven, and these are people, remember, that had already been hearing a voice, and uh, it was kind of a protracted period of time in which the uh, voice of the Savior spoke to them, particularly in 35 chapter 9. So they are accustomed at this point to hearing a voice from heaven, although the previous voice came in the darkness, and this one comes in the light. But interestingly, they don't understand it right away. Verse 3, And it came to pass that while they were thus conversing one with another, they heard a voice as if it came out of heaven, and they cast their eyes round about, for they understood not the voice which they heard. And it was not a harsh voice, neither was it a loud voice. Nevertheless, and notwithstanding it being a small voice, it did pierce them that did hear to the center, insomuch that there was no part of their frame that it did not cause to quake. Yea, it did pierce them to the very soul and did cause their hearts to burn. There's some economy here in the way that the record keeper is telling us about something so transcendent as the voice of the Lord. Not an easy thing to do with words. Joseph Smith often had this dilemma as well, uh, having seen things that were so glorious that he then had to condense them down to words. Arthur Henry King once did a beautiful job of talking about the way in which Joseph recorded his first vision account and the economy and honesty of language that can be found there. Uh, King wrote a book called The Abundance of the Heart, where he elucidates upon that. It's well worth searching out. It's out of print, but there is an Enzyme article uh, by Arthur Henry King that can be found, and and this subject um, is, is dealt with there. I don't remember the name of the article, but I think it's from the late 80s or early 90s. But here we have this description of the voice of the Lord, and it has really compelling qualities. And when we ponder, it's a wonderful thing to ponder, when we ponder upon what the voice of the Lord actually sounds like, because we're good at recognizing voices, uh, the voices of our loved ones or our peers. Uh, we, we can identify someone just by virtue of hearing their voice. Uh, we, maybe we could call that their unique voice print in a way. And it, it would be that the voice print of the Lord would also be recognizable to us. And so in this instance, um, these people are still subject to the veil, however, and they're not sure what it is that they're hearing. Uh, interestingly, it says that it was from heaven, and that made them look around to find it, which is also very interesting. And then the characteristics of this voice are described. Let's review them one more time before moving on. It was not harsh. Now, this is the, this is the Father, so that's of great interest, that it's not harsh. Uh, neither is it loud, yet it's obviously pervasive. And so something of a low volume can still be pervasive. That's interesting. Then it's described as small. Now, on, in other occasions, the, the voice of the Holy Ghost is described as still and small. Small, yet it did pierce them that adhere to the center. And in fact, pierce them to the degree, when we think of pierced, we tend to think of a puncture point. But here it's piercing and pervasive because it pierced them to the center. And then there was no part of their frame and frame is an interesting word instead of body. It, it, it refers to their, their spiritual and physical whole. Uh, 
uh, it did not cause them to quake, and it did pierce them to the very soul. And here's that same language as these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. It did cause their hearts to burn. Burn seems to be the best way to describe the effect of the voice of the Lord upon their hearts. So there's a great deal to think about here and to ponder as we look at verse 3. Here's some commentary on this great verse. Uh, First from the Book of Mormon Institute manual. Elder Dallin H. Oaks taught that the small voice that caused their hearts to burn was more of a feeling than a sound. The word burning in this scripture signifies a feeling of comfort and serenity. Serenity means warmth, gentleness, and calmness. Just as the Nephites had to open their ears uh, to hear the voice of God, and we'll see that phrase in verse 5 of this chapter, President Boyd K. Packer explained our need to pay attention so we might feel the gentle promptings of the Spirit. He said, and this is out of his seminal article, The Candle of the Lord, The voice of the Spirit is described in the Scripture as being neither loud nor harsh. It is not a voice of thunder, neither voice of a great tumultuous noise, but rather a still small voice, excuse me, a still voice of perfect mildness, as if it had been a whisper, and it can pierce even to the very soul and cause the heart to burn. And he's taking that, of course, from the verse that we've just read, but Elder Packer is also pulling from Helam in chapter 5, verse 30. We can remember that that's when Nephi and Lehi were in the prison in Lamanite lands, the same prison as, as the first Ammon. And then he's also pulling uh, that from Doctrine and Covenants, section 85, verses 6 and 7. Then he says, remember, Elijah found the voice of the Lord was not in the wind, nor in the earthquake, nor in the fire, but was a still, small voice. And that's out of 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 12. Now Elder Packer continues, The Spirit does not get our attention by shouting or shaking us with a heavy hand. Rather, it whispers. It caresses so gently that if we are preoccupied, we may not feel it at all. No wonder that the word of wisdom was revealed to us, for how could the drunkard or the addict feel such a voice? Occasionally, it will press just firmly enough for us to pay heed, but most of the time, if we do not heed the gentle feeling, the Spirit will withdraw. Ogden and Skinner have written of this verse, How will we recognize his voice when he speaks to us? Now, this was written some time ago by Ogden and Skinner, but we can't help but think of President Nelson's most recent conference address and how he talked about hearing him. And this phrase will come as we move into the text, hear ye him or hear him. So again, Ogden and Skinner say, how will we recognize his voice when he speaks to us? It is not a mysterious, mystical, magical voice, nor harsh, nor loud. If we have dedicated ourselves to studying his words, we have heard his voice. The quiet impressions, the and by the way, when they make that statement uh, that we have heard his voice if we've studied his words, uh, that's confirmed in Doctrine and Covenants section 18 verses 34 through 36. It's such a uh, an amazing thought and statement. Let's take a moment to read that. These words are not of men, nor of man, but of me. Wherefore, you shall testify they are of me, and not of man. For it is my voice which speaketh them unto you, for they are given by my Spirit unto you, and by my power ye can read them one to another. And save it were by my power, ye could not have them. Wherefore, you can testify that you have heard my voice, and know my words. Now, Ogden and Skinner continue, 
the quiet impressions, the perceptible revelations, are the voice of God speaking to us. We also hear him speaking to us in the temple. What we hear there is most certainly the voice of God and the will of God for us to hear and obey. Someone said, Make time for the quiet moments as God whispers and the world is loud. So now in verse 4, we'll discover that this is a sequence because it says, And it came to pass that again they heard the voice, and they understood it not. So that's the second time in the sequence. Now, the third time in the sequence will come as we come to verse 5. And again, the third time they did hear the voice and did open their ears to hear it. So that seems to have been the missing thing on the previous two occasions. And as we think about this commentary from Elder Packer, how it is that the voice of the Lord can sound in our ears in the very unique way in which it does so, and we don't quite understand what's happening, but we can if we open our ears. So that's really something to ponder on. So they did open their ears to hear it, and their eyes were towards the sound thereof, and they did look steadfastly towards heaven from whence the sound came. We know on this occasion that the Savior is close by as these people look steadfastly towards heaven. It's a really interesting phrase because they seem to have uh, caught hold of the idea that the Savior is close by and perhaps that he will even appear on this occasion. Or at least it is that they're looking uh, for where the sound came. But if you can relate with ever being in the temple or being in a meeting where the feeling is so strong that you wonder if the Savior isn't far away. Perhaps that's a similar feeling to what the people have here. This inclination that they're having will be uh, more amply and fully rewarded than at any other point in Scripture almost. Verse 6, And behold, the third time they did understand the voice which they heard, and it said unto them. And so this suggests that the thing that the voice says unto them this third time was being said to them the other two times, but they had not yet opened their ears to understand what he was saying. Um, President James E. Faust has said, with reference to understanding and obeying the voice of the Lord, the more righteous part of the Nephites had to learn to focus attention in order to hear the voice. So to focus attention, here is uh, an apostle of the Lord saying this. There's something that he has learned from personal experience, I think, as Elder Faust is saying this. They had to learn to focus attention in order to hear the voice. If we are to hearken to the voice of the Spirit, we too must open our ears, turn the eye of faith to the source of the voice, and eye of faith is a phrase that's used in Alma, Alma chapter 5, and look steadfastly towards heaven. So here is the thing that the voice was saying now that they understood it. And this comes in verse 7, Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, in whom I have glorified my name, hear ye him. Before moving to commentary on this particular verse and what it is that the Father said, let me first read from President Nelson's most recent General Conference talk in April of 2020, and it's entitled, Hear Him. Uh, In that talk, President Nelson says, The adversary is clever. For millennia, he has been making good look evil and evil look good. His messages tend to be loud, bold, and boastful. However, messages from our Heavenly Father are strikingly different. He communicates simply, quietly, and with such stunning plainness that we cannot misunderstand Him. 
For example, whenever he has introduced his only begotten Son to mortals upon the earth, he has done so with remarkably few words. On the Mount of Transfiguration to Peter, James, and John, God said, This is my beloved Son, hear him. His words to the Nephites in ancient Bountiful were, Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, in whom I have glorified my name, hear ye him. And to Joseph Smith, in that profound declaration that opened this dispensation, God simply said, This is my beloved Son, hear him. So those are the three episodes that the, that the prophet gives us here. The one that we have just read with the people assembled at Bountiful, the Mount of Transfiguration, and then the experience of young Joseph Smith in the grove. Now, President Nelson continues, my dear brothers and sisters, consider the fact that in these three instances just mentioned, just before the father introduced the son, the people involved were in a state of fear and to some degree desperation. The apostles were afraid when they saw Jesus Christ encircled by a cloud in the Mount of Transfiguration. And there's probably quite a lot of understatement in that uh, when we do read that in the text in the New Testament. The Nephites were afraid because they had been through destruction and darkness for several days. So that's uh, fresh in our memories, and we know just how true that is. And Joseph Smith was in the grips of a force of darkness just before the heavens opened. And of course, Joseph, as I mentioned uh, a few moments ago, used such economy and such honesty in describing supernatural phenomena. And he does so in his first vision account uh, when he talks about being in the grips of that force of darkness. That's worth rereading as we review this concept. Then President Nelson continues after establishing that all three, in all three instances, again, uh, these parties were under great duress before the voice of the Father came. He says, Our Father knows that when we are surrounded by uncertainty and fear, what will help us the very most is to hear His Son. Because when we seek to hear, truly hear His Son, we will be guided to know what to do in any circumstance. The very first word in the Doctrine and Covenants is hearken. It means to listen with the intent to obey. To hearken means to hear Him, to hear what the Savior says and then heed His counsel. In those two words, hear him, God gives us the pattern for success, happiness, and joy in this life. We are to hear the words of the Lord, hearken to them, and heed what he has told us. So hear, hearken, and heed. As we seek to be disciples of Jesus Christ, our efforts to hear him need to be ever more intentional. Now, it was, it was hearing the Father in this instance with the Nephites that needed to be intentional before they had to open their ears before they could understand what was being said. And that is also the pattern for hearing the Savior himself. So our prophet himself, who is ever so adept at hearing him, is telling us that it needs to be ever more intentional in order to hear him. It takes conscious and consistent effort to fill our daily lives with his words, his teachings, his truths. We simply cannot rely upon information we bump into on social media with billions of words online and in marketing-saturated world, in a marketing-saturated world, constantly infiltrated by noisy, nefarious efforts of the adversary. Where can we go to hear him? Now, President Nelson continues, We can go to the scriptures. They teach us about Jesus Christ and his gospel, the magnitude of his atonement, and our Father's great plan of happiness and redemption. 
Daily immersion in the Word of God is crucial for spiritual survival, especially in these days of increasing upheaval. As we feast on the words of Christ daily, the words of Christ will tell us how to respond to difficulties we never thought we would face. Uh, there's, there's so much in that, isn't there? And there's so much that has happened just since President Nelson has said this in April of 2020. We can also hear him in the temple. The house of the Lord is a house of learning. There the Lord teaches in his own way. There each ordinance teaches about the Savior. There we learn how to part the veil and communicate more clearly with heaven. There we learn how to rebuke the adversary and draw upon the Lord's priesthood power to strengthen us and those we love. How eager each of us should be to seek refuge there. Well, President Nelson goes on to speak of the ability to recognize the whisperings of the Holy Ghost and then says, I renew my plea for you to do whatever it takes to increase your spiritual capacity to receive personal revelation. So in in that sense, the onus rests upon us, uh, not upon God speaking to us. He's always willing to do so. Then he says, doing so will help you know how to move ahead with your life, what to do during times of crisis, and how to discern and avoid the temptations and the deceptions of the adversary. And finally, says President Nelson, we hear him as we heed the words of prophets, seers, and revelators, ordained apostles of Jesus Christ, always testify of him. They point the way as we make our way through the heart-wrenching maze of our mortal experiences. Now I'll, I'll share this final paragraph. What will happen as you more intentionally hear, hearken, and heed what the Savior has said and what he is saying now through his prophets? I promise that you will be blessed with additional power to deal with temptation, struggles, and weakness. I promise miracles in your marriage, family relationships, and daily work. And I promise that your capacity to feel joy will increase even if turbulence increases in your life. That final compensating promise from the prophet, I think, is of great interest to us. Well, now returning to commentary that has been offered after this verse from the Institute Manual and also from Ogden and Skinner, and then I'll read something from Joseph Fielding Smith. Uh, So first of all, from the Institute Manual, President Ezra Taft Benson spoke of the rare experience of hearing the voice of Heavenly Father. He said, How few people in all the history of the world have heard the actual voice of God, the Father, speaking to them. As the people looked heavenward, they saw a man descending out of heaven, and he was clothed in a white robe, and he came down and stood in the midst of them. A glorious, resurrected being, a member of the Godhead, the creator of innumerable worlds, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, stood before their very eyes. So, of course, that's what we're about to experience here as we move on in the text. Ogden and Skinner have written, The voice of the Father is heard on rare and sacred occasions in this celestial world. When the Father does come, He comes to say one specific thing, this is my son. Why does he testify of this one single fact? Because that is the most important thing he could say, the most needed testimony he could bear. Jews do not believe God, Elohim, would have had a son. The Shema proclaims, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And that's out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Muslims, between one and two billion of them on the earth now, do not believe God, Allah, would have a son who would come to live with the rest of us groveling humans in this world. Uh, the Quran, for example, says, Far is it removed from his transcendent majesty that he would have a son. 
Neither do many Christians these days believe that God the Father literally had a son in this world. It is a unique and powerful witness of the divinity of that son. His own father bears solemn testimony of that fact at each momentous occasion in the old world and in the new world, in ancient times as well as in modern times. Now finally this from Joseph Filling Smith. All revelation since the fall has come through Jesus Christ, who is the Jehovah of the Old Testament. In all of the scriptures where God is mentioned and where he has appeared, it was Jehovah. The Father has never dealt with man directly and personally since the fall, and he has never appeared except to introduce and bear record of the Son. So that certainly lends perspective as to the momentous occasion that we're about to read, and also of Joseph Smith's experience in the grove, of course. And uh, we'd have to add, from what President Nelson has just told us, the Mount of Transfiguration. So now as we come into verses 8 and 9, as they have uh, viewed the heavens with the eye of faith, as they have cast their eyes uh, toward heaven, uh, they are duly rewarded in a way that we could only dream of. So verses 8 and 9, And it came to pass, as they understood, they cast their eyes, again, understood the voice of the Father. Now this introduction has been made. They cast their eyes up again towards heaven. So that's the second time that's mentioned. And behold, they saw a man descending out of heaven, and he was clothed in a white robe. And he came down and stood in the midst of them. Uh, Think about uh, Nephi's view of the Savior in his vision. Behold the condescension of God. The way that he would come down and stand in the midst of them. Now he's already completed his mortal condescension, but now he comes down and stands in the midst of them. Why would a God, the creator of numberless worlds, deign to come among these people and spend time with them? It's something to think deeply about. And he came down and stood in the midst of them. And the eyes of the whole multitude were turned upon him, and they durst not open their mouths, even one to another, and wist not what it meant, for they thought it was an angel that had appeared unto them. We've talked about the ground in the last few chapters. The ground became unstable. It shifted. It broke. It opened up. People fell into it. It swallowed people up. It groaned. Uh, the ground. And then, of course, in the introduction, we talked about a, a more firm ground that the Savior will introduce later in this chapter as his rock. That's the only reliable rock. The Savior, in this instance, as he descends, clearly does not need the ground to be stable. He's, he's in the heavens. Uh, but he still uh, comes down to the level of these people. And it says he stands or he stood in the midst of them. When it says the eyes of the whole multitude were turned upon him, uh, that's of great interest. They were, they were looking in the heavens. And then uh, quite interesting that they would, uh, it, it, the, the text is careful to say, that they would not open their mouths even one to another. There is a tremendous reverence taking place here, ultimate reverence, really. It's not a time for people to turn to one another and talk. They are fixated on this man that has come out of heaven. They're still not sure of his identity, interestingly, even though the voice of the Father had just introduced him, and they think it's an angel that has appeared to them, so they they still haven't completely connected the dots. But when we think about our uh, the way that we comport ourselves 
in the chapel of the church, for example. Uh, the, the idea of reverence is sometimes imposed upon us extrinsically, but the truth is that if we are fixated on the Savior during those moments, well, it, it won't be, we won't want to turn to one another and talk about what it meant. Uh, that, that's certainly the way that it is when we partake of the sacrament and at other holy times. Here's commentary from Ogden and Skinner. They say, They saw a man descending out of heaven. Tribes of ancient America believed in Quetzalcoatl, whose name means bird serpent. He descended out of the sky like a bird, and he was as the serpent raised up on the pole to heal the people. Jesus' descent to the Nephites provides a pattern for how he will come at his second coming. When he ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives after his resurrection, two angelic witnesses said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Well, that is what has happened here. He has he has come back in like manner as the way in which he left. We can anticipate then that he will return to the Mount of Olives specifically, but as he comes here to Bountiful, that would be also a, a, a fulfillment of what these uh, angels are saying on that occasion. Then, verse 9, they are fixated upon this man, who may be an angel as far as they're concerned. And it came to pass that he stretched forth his hand and spake unto the people, saying, and now here he will confirm his identity, just as he did when he spoke to them as a voice, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. I am here. I was here the whole time. I've always been here. I'm behind all of the words that the prophets have spoken up to this point. I was there as you read those words, and now I am here with you. I am Jesus Christ. He, of course, is known in the Old Testament as the great I am, and he uses that here, I am, and then couples that with his, uh, his earned name title, Jesus, that name that he was given in mortality and that Joseph and Mary were told to name him, then coupled with the word Christ, Jesus Christ. It's not a surname in the way that we conceive of surnames in our Western society. It's a name title. It's the ultimate name title, Christ, Messiah. That he stretched forth his hand, I think, in verse 9, is of great interest to us as well, and the text is careful to show us that. Uh, He stretches forth his hand. His hands play a prominent role uh, as we read through the text here. Why is it that the people thought that this might be an angel when they didn't understand the voice of the Father the first time, they didn't understand the voice the second time, then they opened their ears, and they were able to understand it the third time, and the Father introduced the Son and said, uh, Hear ye him. Then the Son appears, but they still think it's an angel. Why is this? Uh, I don't know if we can be sure, but it certainly is a thought-provoking question. It could simply be that this is so fantastical that even though they have heard the Savior's voice, uh, who's spoken to them extensively already, we can remember that as this is happening, uh, and even though they've just heard the Father's voice uh, three repeated times, they still hardly dare believe that this could actually be happening, but it really, really is. Remember, Nephi is among these people, the same man 
who was told, tomorrow come I into the world. When he came to that point where the people were about to be slain uh, for their fidelity to Samuel's signs and because of their faith in Samuel's signs of their birth. And a day was appointed that they would actually be slain if the sign didn't come. Uh, Nephi would be among that crowd and many of those people who were just about to be killed. Uh, are now standing in the midst of the Savior himself and are being rewarded for their faith uh, that they demonstrated 33 years prior. What would the Savior say immediately after identifying himself with such authority and power? Well, here's what he says in verse 11. And behold, I am the light and the life of the world. So they watched the light of the morning appear, after this terrible sign of darkness that these people have gone through. And as the light of the morning came and their joy, uh, the, the, the cavities carved in their soul from their great sorrow had been replaced with joy, now this experience comes and they're associating the light of the Savior himself with the morning light that has come. All of it again recalls, as I mentioned in the introduction, the connection between Malachi's words about the Son of Righteousness, which is actually spelled there, S-U-N, Uh, will come with healing in his wings. Remember his outstretched hand. He gestured to them in that way when he is speaking to them on this occasion. So behold, I am the light and the life of the world. And think about how life and death have, have, um, have been exchanged so freely in this, this cataclysmic moment for these Nephites. I am the life of the world. And I have drunk out of that bitter cup which the Father hath given me. So if you know of my life and of my mission, the words of the prophets that have been taught to you, and you know that it was my task, uh, many have prophesied on this, and we can think about Mormon's abridgment and the way that, uh, uh, for example, Alma talked about this in Alma chapter 7 when he spoke to the people of Gideon, that this would be the task of the Savior, that he would have to condescend in this way and drink out of that bitter cup. So did he do it? Well, the Savior's now confirming that he successfully carried out his mission. I have drunk out of that bitter cup, which the Father hath given me, and have glorified the Father in taking upon me the sins of the world. Again, think about Alma's words in Alma chapter 7. He did it. He really accomplished it. Think about Amulek's words in Alma 34 in the which I have suffered the will of the Father in all things from the beginning. It is finished, as he said. He has fully accomplished his atoning act. With respect to this cup, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland said something very compelling in his general conference address in April 2019 uh, called Behold the Lamb of God. I'd like to read some sections from that. Again, think of this cup, this bitter cup. He said, my beloved brothers and sisters, with the exciting new emphasis on increased gospel learning in the home, it is crucial for us to remember that we are still commanded to go to the house of prayer and offer up thy sacraments upon my holy day. In addition to making time for more more home-centered gospel instruction, our modified Sunday service is also to reduce the complexity of the meeting schedule in a way that properly emphasizes the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as the sacred, acknowledged focal point of our weekly worship experience. We are to remember in as personal a way as possible that Christ died from a broken heart, broken by shouldering entirely alone the sins and sorrows of the human family. 
That's so beautifully said. Inasmuch as we contributed to that fatal burden, such a moment demands our respect. Thus we are encouraged to come to our services early and reverently, dressed appropriately for participation in a sacred ordinance. Then Elder Holland says, Brothers and sisters, this hour ordained of the Lord is the most sacred hour of our week. By commandment, we gather for the most universally received ordinance in the church. It is in memory of him who asked if the cup he was about to drink could pass, only to press on, because he knew that for our sake it could not pass. It will help us if we remember that a symbol of that cup is slowly making its way down the road toward us at the hand of an 11- or 12-year-old deacon. Ogden and Skinner have written, I am the light and the life of the world. The identification of Jesus as the light of the world is metaphorical, but also literal. And there they reference Doctrine and Covenants, section 88, verses 6 through 13. The Savior had just drunk from a very bitter cup. President James E. Faust described how we can follow his example. Many members in drinking of the bitter cup that has come to them wrongfully think that this cup passes by others. In his first words to the people of the Western continent, Jesus of Nazareth poignantly spoke of the bitter cup the Father had given him. Every soul has some bitterness to swallow. Parents having a child who loses his way come to know a sorrow that defies description. A woman whose husband is cruel or insensitive can have her heart broken every day. Members who do not marry may suffer sorrow and disappointment. Having drunk the bitter cup, however, there comes a time when one must accept the situation as it is and reach upward and outward. There is nothing, Ogden and Skinner continue, any of us will ever suffer that our Savior has not also suffered. He descended not only to our condition, but below all things. When we cry out, but you don't understand, he is the only one who actually does understand. All things and his understanding is accompanied by compassion. The same applies, of course, to our Father. Along those lines, I personally love to think of the, of the words in the hymn, Where Can I Turn for Peace? And think about the way in which the Savior uh, stretched his arm out before he said what it is that he's saying to these people. And there's a line in that song that says, and when we think about this truth, as Ogden and Skinner are saying, that he is the only one who actually does understand, uh, this hymn says, where, uh, excuse me, he answers privately, reaches my reaching. Again, think of the Savior's outstretched arms. Reaches my reaching in my Gethsemane, Savior and friend. Gentle the peace he finds for my beseeching. Constant he is and kind, love without end. Now finally, with respect to this bitter cup, McConkie and Millet have written, it is doctrinally significant to note what the Savior did as he appeared to the people and for what purposes he did it. He taught and testified of himself, he is the Christ, the Messiah, who every prophet had testified would come into the world. The bitter cup, which is the symbolic representation of the painful demands of justice that had to be met in order for the infinite and eternal sacrifice to be fulfilled, had been drunk. And remember Elder Holland's words when he actually said that this cup was so terrible for the Savior to drink that uh, he actually asked if the cup he was about to drink could pass. Then the Savior later says in the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, section 19, almost in a tone of fury, he says, 
how sore you know not, how exquisite you know not, yea, how to hard to bear you know not. He's describing his sufferings, or in other words, he's describing this cup that he asked if it could pass. For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. So repenting is the actuator to access all of this. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I, which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore and to suffer both body and spirit and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Nevertheless, glory be to the Father and I partook. When we consider the way in which the Savior was willing to partake of this cup, uh, we might think for just a moment about Adam and Eve and how it was that they partook of something that facilitated the plan. And uh, that fruit that they partook of, not a cup but fruit, is um, associated with the word forbidden. But in a way, it would have had bitterness as well. Um, a, A different time and a different thing, but we do know that what we know about the fall is what uh, it helps us to know about the atonement. That's what uh, Bruce R. McConkie taught us about the three pillars of eternity, that we know what we know about the creation so we can understand the fall. We know what we know about the fall so that we can understand the atonement. So now that the Savior has said these things, uh, all of this is is implied, and the people are feeling the implications of this in, uh, in what he has said so far. And so it's very natural that their uh, reaction would be to fall to the earth at this point. And that is what happens in verse 12. And it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, the whole multitude fell to the earth. For they remembered that it had been prophesied among them that Christ should show himself unto them after his ascension into heaven. So we learned earlier in the chapter that when they had assembled in Bountiful, they had come to the temple there. Remember, Zarahemla is gone. So Bountiful is the place that they find themselves at. That they, at that point, were talking about Samuel's signs, and so they were clearly making a connection between the cataclysmic destruction that had taken place and the way in which the voice of the Savior himself had come to them. They are associating that with Samuel's signs. But here's that association again in verse 12. It says that they remembered. So here it seems to be that they're coming into full remembrance that it had been prophesied among them that Christ should show himself. Now, this is not, I don't think, in most occasions because they had forgot it entirely. Because remember, again, these are very faithful people, and some of them uh, were the same ones that had put their lives on the line in 3 Nephi chapter 1. But this remembrance is that full understanding at this point that this time of fulfillment has finally come. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland has written, He speaks and says simply with a voice that penetrates the very marrow of your bones, I am Jesus Christ. There it is, or more correctly speaking, there he is, the focal point and principal figure behind every fireside and devotional and family home evening held by those Nephites for the last 600 years. Everyone has talked of him and sung of him and dreamed of him and prayed, but here he actually is. This is the day and yours is the generation. What a moment. But you find you are less inclined to check the film in your camera than you are to check the faith in your heart. That memorable statement is actually co-written by Patricia Holland as well, out of uh, something that they wrote together called On Earth As It Is In Heaven. 
And that's the feeling that we're getting as well as readers. Here he actually is, after everything we've read in the Book of Mormon, having moved through this narrative to this point, and here he actually is. It's quite a thing to consider. And really, uh, one impression that comes to me as I come to this personally and reading this is, uh, here I actually am, but the truth is, I have been here the whole time. Now, verse 13, And it came to pass that the Lord spake unto them, saying, Arise. So remember, they had fallen to the ground at this point. They don't know what's going to come next. But look at what this personal Savior does. Arise and come forth unto me, that ye may thrust your hands into my side, and also that ye may feel the prints of the nails in my hands and in my feet, that ye may know that I am the God of Israel and the God of the whole earth, and have been slain for the sins of the world. There's a great deal in this invitation, and I'll read some uh, commentary in just a moment. We know little about the personalities of the people that are present, but we know quite a bit about the personalities of, of the Savior's apostles. And we know that when they discovered that he had risen, that they ran. And we can just imagine what Peter, how he would have responded to this invitation as the Lord came back, for example. Uh, he, he would have been very quick to come to the Lord and to thrust his hands into his side. And so that's the invitation that's being given. The, the, the time in the New Testament uh, when this opportunity is presented uh, is when it's presented to Thomas. Uh, and, and the context for that makes us think that it's, a, uh, it's something that's not necessary uh, to, to thrust our hands into his side and to fill the nail prints in his hands. Uh, yet here, that experience is being presented as something uh, positive and confirmatory and uh, not just reserved for one who had doubted. So I, I think we can guess from that that there's a lot more going on with that Thomas story than what uh, we're given in the New Testament. Well, here's something uh, from Ogden and Skinner. They say, A beautiful lesson comes from the wounds in the Savior's side, wrists, hands, and feet. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland wrote, However dim our days may seem, they have been a lot darker for the Savior of the world. As a reminder of those days, Jesus has chosen, even in a resurrected, otherwise perfected body, to retain for the benefit of his disciples the wounds in his hands and in his feet and in his side. Signs, if you will, that painful things happen even to the pure and perfect. Signs, if you will, that pain in this world is not evidence that God doesn't love you. Signs, if you will, that problems pass and happiness can be ours. Elder Tad Arcalister, a member of the Seventy, explained the effects of Jesus' physical wounds. He said, In his resurrected state, Jesus retained the prints of nails in his hands and feet as a special manifestation to the world. Such marks, however, are only temporary. After all have confessed that he is the Christ, his resurrected body will, like those of all mankind, be restored to its proper and perfect frame. I am the God of Israel and the God of the whole earth. He was not appearing as a great moral teacher or even as our elder brother. He is above all others who live on this planet. He is God. Verse 15. And it came to pass that the multitude went forth and thrust their hands into his side and did fill the prints of the nails in his hands and in his feet. And this they did do going forth one by one until they had all gone forth and did see with their eyes, and did fill with their hands, 
and did know of a surety, and did bear record that it was he of whom it was written by the prophets that should come. So what a moment, and um, in our own life experience, when we think about being oh, in, a, in a classroom setting or something else where each uh, member of that, of that class is, is allowed to, um, in succession, uh, inspect an object or, or a specimen of some sort. It's a, it can be kind of a clinical or an academic experience, and we, we almost uh, can impose that same experience uh, to this, but this is so much more. Uh, it's infinitely more. Uh, we, we can guess that each individual who came and um, uh, grasped the Savior in this way and without a doubt looked into his face, that there would have been a degree of recognition that would have penetrated the premortal veil, uh, at least to a degree. And there, there would have been a feeling of familiarity and a feeling of love that would have transcended time. And uh, that's a very important aspect of the Savior's ministry because his time in Gethsemane was, uh, you know, was covered by the span of, of one night, but it transcends time, the thing that he did. And so this moment for these people, as they looked into his eyes, even though many had to process to him and away from him so that they could be with him during that moment, that, that moment uh, undoubtedly would have transcended time. I remember personally as a young missionary uh, having President or then Elder Russell M. Nelson visit our mission. And I remember standing in the entryway to the chapel, uh, anticipating his arrival with a, with a line of missionaries that he would come uh, so, so that when he came to the chapel, he could shake each of our hands. And he and his wife, Danzel, were, were there together. But he hadn't arrived yet, and I still remember the distinct feeling that he had, uh, he had come and entered the building. Uh, this this mantle that he carried as an apostle of the Lord was was very spiritually strong at that time, and I remember having such an experience when meeting him and shaking his hand. It would have been in 1990, I believe. Uh, no, 1991. It was in Brisbane, Australia, at a at a, a stake center at a, on a spot called Kangaroo Point. Uh, now a temple stands there, but I remember standing there and shaking President Nelson's hand, talking to him for a brief moment, and looking into his eyes, which were very penetrating. And having just such a moment that seemed to transcend time. And I, I remember that that moment was actually enough for me. I learned uh, such a great deal from him when he spoke uh, to, that, to, to, to the missionaries that were assembled later. But that one experience simply of standing there and looking to, into his eyes uh, had an effect upon me that, that certainly did transcend time. So I've, I've always thought about that in relation to this experience that these people had in seeing the Savior for what may have been a brief moment, but also it would have been transformational. Here's more commentary on this idea that the Savior did retain these physical signs, uh, these marks. And, uh, of course, we've just read from Elder Holland, and now we'll read from two other sources from Elder Holland on this subject. Uh, First, from something called Teaching, Preaching, and Healing. He said, These wounds are the principal way we are to recognize Him when He comes. He may invite us forward, as he has invited others, to see and to fill those marks. If not before, then surely at that time we will remember with Isaiah that it was for us that a God was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, uh, and acquainted with grief, that he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Then uh, in Christ and the New Covenant, 
Elder Holland has written, The wounds in his hands, feet, and side are signs that in mortality painful things happen even to the pure and the perfect. Signs that tribulation is not evidence that God does not love us. It is a significant and hopeful fact that it is the wounded Christ who comes to our rescue. He who bears the scars of sacrifice, the lesions of love, the emblems of humility and forgiveness is the captain of our soul. That evidence of pain and mortality is undoubtedly intended to give courage to others who are also hurt and wounded by life, perhaps even in the house of their friends. In spite of the size of the great multitude, Christ nevertheless took time for each one to have that personal experience. These are remarkable insights from Elder Holland, and I just have to add here that I had the pleasure of being in his ward for a period of time, and once heard him speak on this subject, uh, and as he extemporized on the idea of the Savior being broken in this way, he talked specifically about uh, his side being pierced as he hung on the cross, and then the way in which he retained those signs, and the way, the way in which we commemorate the mercy of a broken man when we uh, uh, commune with him and partake of the sacrament on each Sunday. He had a way of speaking on the Savior on that occasion that uh, has never left me because of the way in which Elder Holland spoke of the Savior in the present tense. And these sufferings that the Savior sustained, Elder Holland spoke of them in such a personal way uh, that there was very clearly a special relationship between him and the Savior. Well, now moving into verse 16, here's what this multitude will now do as we consider what they have been allowed to take in on a personal level as they have interacted with the Savior one by one. Verse 16, And when they had all gone forth and had witnessed for themselves, they did cry out with one accord. So we have seen that a few other times in the Book of Mormon when the people have cried out in concert. It happened at King Benjamin's address, for example. But here they are crying out in one accord, and there, there is some precedent for that in our own lives. We've seen this happen. In fact, it happened at the most recent general conference. They cried out with one accord, saying, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Most High God. And they did fall down at the feet of Jesus and did worship him. Ogden and Skinner have written, One by one, all the people, 2,500 of them. So there's the number. We, we learned earlier that it was a great multitude, but there was no quantity given. But in 3 Nephi chapter 17, we're told that it was 2,500 of them. Saw with their eyes, felt with their hands, bore testimony of him, praised him, and worshiped him. Jesus could simply have shown himself to the whole multitude, but this is a poignant illustration of his care for the one. During his ministry on both sides of the world, Jesus touched people, both physically and spiritually. His priesthood ordinances also involved touch, both physically and spiritually. Touch was an important element in lasting conversion. The people, one by one, touched his body for two reasons. First, to know and testify forever that the living Christ is a real corporeal being, to avoid what later happened to apostates who claim that God is without body, parts, or passions. And two, to experience the wounds of the atonement, to be personal eyewitnesses of the dramatic, tangible evidence of his pure love. Hosanna is a Hebrew word, Hoshana, meaning save us, we pray, or save us, we beseech thee. Lael Woodbury in the, the Sidney B. Sperry lecture series uh, wrote a long time ago in 1975 
in a piece called The Origin and Uses of the Sacred Hosanna Shout, that whether in the heavens and on earth in this dispensation, the Hosanna Shout expressed unspeakable, sublime, and deeply sacred joy. In Jewish usage, it became more nearly a cry of supplication. So that's what these people do at this occasion, at this temple, in the midst of the Savior in Bountiful. They shout Hosanna in concert. Now, this episode comes to a close in 3 Nephi chapter 11, and we're made to look upon a new scene. This now has to do with the Savior interacting with his prophet, Nephi. Verse 18, And it came to pass that he spake unto Nephi. So that is the next thing the Savior will do. For Nephi was among the multitude. That's interesting to us there as well to see that he, just as the prophet would be among the multitude if he were to uh, worship in the temple with them, he would be dressed with them, he would be a member of the congregation. And uh, Nephi was the same. And he commanded him that he should come forth. And Nephi arose and went forth and bowed himself before the Lord and did kiss his feet. One cannot help at this point but to think of Bruce R. McConkie's final testimony uh, in 1985, and I referenced it earlier in the the introduction to this chapter, but I'll read this here, and Ogden and Skinner have presented it in this way. Nephi bowed himself before the Lord and did kiss his feet. After a long and influential ministry, Elder Bruce R. McConkie of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles said during his final general conference address, I am one of his witnesses. And in a coming day, I shall feel the nail marks in his hands and in his feet and shall wet his feet with my tears. But I shall not know any better then than I know now that he is God's almighty son, that he is our savior and redeemer, and that salvation comes in and through his atoning blood and in no other way. I remember that riveting talk uh, by Elder McConkie. I was 12 years old when he gave it and my um, attention Uh, was riveted at that time, even at that age. Um, I'm sure I didn't pay that much attention to some of the other talks in General Conference, but when he came to that point, when he said, I I know of myself independent of anyone else, uh, that was uh, truly an amazing moment. And uh, then what he says after that, that he would know know better then than he knows now, was, uh, I think, one of the more striking testimonies that have ever been borne by an apostle. And and um, so it's, it's natural that we would often refer to that statement of Elder McConkie. And we can just think here of Nephi's regard for the Savior, the way in which he has shown such fidelity to him. Perhaps he didn't know any better at this moment as he kissed his feet and bowed himself before him as he, as he did previously. His faith in him was so strong. We can guess that that most certainly would have been the case. Verse 20, And the Lord commanded him that he should arise, and he arose and stood before him. And the Lord said unto him, I give unto you power that ye shall baptize this people when I am again ascended into heaven. So what is the subject that the Lord is to speak of here with Nephi? Immediately it has to do with how others can link themselves to him by covenant. And what ordinance will ratify that act? It is the ordinance of baptism. Here's some commentary that comes back to this idea of the Hosanna shout that took place, if we call it a Hosanna shout. Of course, we use that term at other times, but they uttered the word Hosanna altogether. The Institute Manual says the word Hosanna is a transliteration of a Hebrew word of supplication, which means, in essence, O grant salvation. 
Evidently, the people were asking the Savior to teach them the way to salvation. This is not surprising that he immediately teaches them the basic principles and ordinances of the gospel. So that's why this commentary is here rather than uh, a few verses back, because that, that way it would follow naturally from the meaning of the word Hosanna that the Savior then would teach them the way to salvation. And of course, he is the way. It's a name title. Ogden and Skinner have written, Once true conversion takes place, baptism follows. And we have seen this theme throughout Mormon's abridgment. Baptism is a simple act lasting only a few seconds, but it shows faith and humility. With firm belief in Christ and after repenting of one's sins, the symbolic act of total immersion in the baptismal waters signals cleansing and coming forth to newness of life, being born again, this time spiritually. The importance of this ordinance is evident by its frequent mention. In these 23 verses, baptism is referred to 19 times. The righteous Nephites were no longer under the old law, but part of a new church organization, so they were baptized again to enter the kingdom of God on earth. So that answers an important question for us because we know that baptism was not foreign to Nephi. We almost get the impression that it is here as the Lord is teaching that to him, but we know that the church is being restructured. And so in this rare instance, they're being baptized anew. Verse 22, now we see that there were others involved in this as well. And again, the Lord called others and said unto them likewise, and he gave unto them power to baptize. Remember that all along here, especially we saw this in 3 Nephi chapter 7, that Nephi's ministry most certainly did continue during that time of great duress and antagonism. And there were others that he called that did the same with him. And he said unto them, On this wise shall ye baptize, that there shall be no disputations among you. In other words, there are many who were with Nephi that were faithful, and uh, uh, many of them will be called as disciples here as this story goes on with the Savior. So here's this idea of no disputations among you. We know that there were some disputations at the very beginning of Third Nephi when some believed that the law of Moses uh, should no longer be uh, observed. And so that was a point of disputation, and perhaps there were others as time went on among these believing parties in their earnest efforts to uh, follow the gospel plan in the way that it had been prescribed. So the Savior is clearing all this up and saying, here is how you should baptize. Verse 23, Verily I say unto you, that whoso repenteth of his sins through your words, and desireth to be baptized in my name, on this wise shall ye baptize them. Behold, ye shall go down and stand in the water, and in my name ye shall baptize them. So the prerequisite for being baptized is that you would be uh, so moved by the word that you would be moved by faith unto repentance. So that's the word part. And then as Paul said, there's the word and the power. So here's the power part. Through the power of the priesthood, one would ratify this desire and formalize this act of covenant with the Lord by uh, performing this ordinance. It's the holy equivalent of signing a contract, really. So, behold, ye shall go down and stand in the water. Undoubtedly, this implies a baptism by immersion that commemorates the the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Savior. The prophet Joseph Smith once said, Baptism is a sign to God, to angels, and to heaven, that we do the will of God. And there is no other way beneath the heavens whereby God hath ordained for man to come to him to be saved and enter into the kingdom of God except faith in Jesus Christ, repentance, and baptism for the remission of sins. Then you have the promise of the gift of the Holy Ghost. 
So there is the very critical gate portion of the doctrine of Christ, we might say, that's being expressed so eloquently there by the prophet Joseph Smith, the first principles and ordinances of the gospel. Verse 24, And now behold, these are the words which ye shall say, calling them by name, saying, So the manner of baptism, as the italicized summary said at the beginning of this chapter, has just been uh, shown by the Lord or described by the Lord, and now he's going to say the words. These are the words which he shall say, calling them by name, saying, Having authority given me of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Now, this is of great interest to us for a whole variety of reasons. Later uh, in the book of Moroni, the exact wording of the sacramental prayers will also be given. And what we can see here is that when this covenant is entered into, this covenant of baptism, that the terms of the covenant are not expressed in the covenantal prayer itself or in the ordinance itself. That seems to be somewhat unique among the ordinances of salvation. But instead, the terms of this agreement are expressed in the sacrament prayer. In the prayer upon the bread, we're told that we will always have his spirit to be with us if we will always remember him, take his name upon us, and keep his commandments, those three things. Ogden and Skinner have written, Today's baptismal prayer is exactly the same as given anciently in the Book of Mormon, with only one alteration. Instead of saying, having authority given me of Jesus Christ, we say, having been commissioned of Jesus Christ. We can see that in Doctrine and Covenants, section 20, verse 73. Daniel Ludlow wrote, One possible explanation for this difference is that the disciples in the Book of Mormon received their authority directly from Jesus Christ, Therefore, they rightfully could say, having authority given me of Jesus Christ. However, in this dispensation, priesthood bearers have been given the power to baptize from John the Baptist, who was commissioned by Jesus Christ to come to earth to restore this authority. Therefore, in this dispensation, we use the words, having been commissioned of Jesus Christ. This can raise a question more generally as to why there is set wording to some prayers, and that, of course, is true in the ordinances We have that phrase in the Doctrine and Covenants that says, in the ordinances thereof, the power of godliness is manifest. So the set nature of these words is critical. Elder Marky Peterson uh, once wrote, By revelation, the Lord has given the church three set prayers for use in our sacred ordinances. Except for these prayers, the Lord seems to expect us to express ourselves in our own words as we approach him in supplication. All three of these revealed prayers relate to the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, and his burial and resurrection. All of the ordinances in which we use these prayers place us under solemn covenants of obedience to God. They are the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and the ordinance of baptism. So again, as we can see, those are the three set prayers that are in our canon, and they are found here in the verse that we have just read, the wording of baptism, and then later in the book of Moroni, the wording of the sacramental prayers will be found there. The Savior now continues as he instructs Nephi and those others whom he has appointed. In verse 26, And then shall ye immerse them in water. So now, just in case we miss it, uh, they have gone into the water, but now he will actually use the word immerse here. Ye shall immerse them in the water and come forth again out of the water. There is the clarity of this great book. And here is the Savior himself teaching the people this thing. And after this manner shall ye baptize in my name. For behold, verily I say unto you that the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are one, and I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and the Father and I 
are one. So he's emphasizing the same thing here that he did when he spoke in the upper room to his disciples and uttered that great intercessory prayer in John chapter 17. Now this from the Institute Manual. There appears to have been some contention among the Nephites concerning the manner of baptism. The Lord clarified how the ordinance should be performed. President Boyd K. Packer explained the significance of baptism and cautioned that we should not alter this sacred ordinance. He said, Baptism by immersion for the remission of sins is the first ordinance. Baptism must be by immersion, for it is symbolic of both the coming forth from temporal death from the grave and the cleansing required from redemption from spiritual death. Under the plan, baptism is not just for entrance into the Church of Jesus Christ. It begins a spiritual rebirth that may eventually lead back into the presence of God. If we really understood what baptism signifies, we could never consider it trivial nor alter the form of this sacred ordinance. Through the sacrament, we renew the covenant. This great doctrine of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost being one is something that I'd like to dwell on for just a moment. And Ogden and Skinner provided great commentary on this uh, when we were in Mosiah chapter 15, when Abinadi was speaking on this subject. So I'd like to read that here because the Savior is so deliberate in, in discussing that in verse 27. Eleven days before his death, Joseph Smith taught, I have always declared God to be a distinct personage, Jesus Christ a separate and distinct personage from God the Father, and that the Holy Ghost was a distinct personage and a spirit. There are three distinct persons in the Godhead. The prophet also declared, Everlasting covenant was made between three personages before the organization of this earth, and relates to their dispensation of things to men on the earth. These personages are called God the First, the Creator, God the second, the Redeemer, and God the third, the witness or testator. The Book of Mormon teaches plainly the roles of the second member of the Godhead as the Old Testament Jehovah and the New Testament Jesus, but it also plainly elucidates his roles as Father and Son. Jesus Christ is both the Son and the Father, the Son because he was begotten of by God the Father and submitted to the will of the Father, but also the Father in the sense that he is the Creator or Father of the earth. He is the father of our flesh because our flesh is made from the dust or elements of the earth that he created. He is the God or father of the Old Testament and the father or author of our salvation. He was and is the great Jehovah. He has all the attributes of the father and by divine investiture he serves the role of the father in all things relative to our salvation. By his sacrifice he became even more than our savior. He became our covenant father and as we are spiritually reborn we become the children of Christ. The foregoing is a summary of a statement issued in 1916, The Father and the Son, a doctrinal exposition by the First Presidency and the Twelfth. Jehovah of the Old Testament and Jesus of the New Testament are explained and distinguished. The phrase, they are one God, in verse 4, refers to Jehovah and Jesus as one God, the same person. In addition, all of the gods constituting the Godhead are one God in the sense that they are exactly the same mind and heart in everything they do with us here on earth. The concept of unity or oneness is foundational in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the basic and essential message inherent in the otherwise abstract English word atonement, at one meant, or the idea of becoming one. So much alike are the three members of the Godhead, that if we know one, we know the others. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are one God. Brigham Young University professors Stephen Robinson and Dean Garrett clarify, quote, 
We tend to focus on the distinctions between the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost in order to understand them as individuals. But the message of Doctrine and Covenants 93 verse 3, I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and the Father and I are one, is that such a neat division between their respective roles is sometimes difficult to make. For their complete unity of thought, personality, and purpose usually makes them better understood by their oneness, by their alikeness, than by their differences. This unity of the Godhead is so perfect that it sometimes confuses us, as when Christ speaks as the Father or when the Holy Ghost speaks as the Son, and there are scriptural references for those incidents. As we teach the truth concerning the separate physical natures of the Father and the Son, we must be careful not to separate them in any other sense, for the Father and the Son are in each other, as John chapter 14 verse 10 says, and are one in a way difficult for mortals to fully appreciate though in a way that does not compromise their separate and individual being. Then Ogden and Skinner continue, Mosiah chapter 15 verses 5 through 9 describes in considerable detail, remember that these are Abinadi's words here, Christ's perfect willingness to come down and to perform the mighty miracles and yet experience rejection, suffering, and death, and all according to the will of the Father to intercede for all the children of men and resolve all the consequences of the fall. Thus, Jesus, the Messiah, is the great mediator. He pleads our case before God the Father. Now again, the Savior bookends what he has just said in verse 28 by saying, And according as I have commanded you, and thus shall ye baptize, and there shall be no disputations among you, as there have hitherto been. So how are those uh, disputations dispelled in this instance regarding the manner of baptism? Not by committee, This is by command, and it's coming from the Lord himself. And so with that idea in mind, he's about to teach us how it is that we are to receive his doctrine. It is not established by the brightest minds getting together and deciding by committee what his doctrines are. There is a different way to decide in the divine order of things. Divine truth and divine doctrine is dispensed from their divine source. That's what the Savior is talking about here as he discusses contention. He's not just talking about argument or argumentation in a vacuum. So as he now continues in verse 28, Neither shall there be disputations among you concerning the points of my doctrine as there have hitherto been. That is not the way one establishes doctrine. For verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but is of the devil, who is the father of contention, and he stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger one with another. So we have read of many instances in the past where Satan has stirred up the hearts of the people uh, to the degree, think of the Lamanites, for example, where Amalekiah stirred their hearts up to the point that they are willing to go to war against the Nephites. Uh, So he does it that way and stirs them up to contend. But he stirs in another way too, which is to mix the philosophies of men with divine truth, uh, the truth of Scripture. That's another way that he stirs and mixes. And he also takes this process, which seems laudable enough in the halls of academia and in the sciences, where the the, the Socratic or scientific process is to uh, cultivate a hypothesis and then to test it and then turn it to a theory. And then the theory is turned into a law if that hypothesis can graduate from one peer-reviewed step to another. That's the process of establishing truth through the scientific method that we revere so much today in our very materialistic society. 
the Savior saying that there is another way to establish doctrine, divine truth, uh, things as they really are, to use that phrase that Jacob used in Jacob chapter 4, verse 13. So contention implies all of those processes here as we read this. Verse 30 Behold, this is not my doctrine to stir up the hearts of men with anger one against another, but this is my doctrine, that such things should be done away. Now here's some beautiful commentary on this concept of establishing doctrine and of contention. First from the Book of Mormon Institute manual. President Henry B. Eyring helps us understand that the Spirit of God will not lead people into contention. He said, where people have that Spirit with them, we may expect harmony. The Spirit puts the testimony of truth in our hearts, which unifies those who share that testimony. The Spirit of God never generates contention. It never generates the feelings of distinctions between people which lead to strife. It leads to personal peace and a feeling of union with others. It unifies souls. A unified family, a unified church, and a world at peace depend on unified souls. President Thomas S. Monson shared a story illustrating the blessings that come from avoiding contention. After reading 3 Nephi, Uh, chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, he said, Let me conclude with an account of two men who are heroes to me. Their acts of courage were not performed on a national scale, but rather in a peaceful valley known as Midway, Utah. Of course, President Monson uh, kept a home in Midway, Utah. Long years ago, Roy Kohler and Grant Riemann served together in church capacities. They were the best of friends. They were tillers of the soil and dairymen. Then a misunderstanding arose which became somewhat of a rift between them. Later, when Roy Kohler became grievously ill with cancer and had but a limited time to live, my wife Frances and I visited Roy and his wife, and I gave him a blessing. As we talked afterwards, Brother Kohler said, let me tell you about one of the sweetest experiences I have had during my life. He then recounted to me his misunderstanding with Grant Riemann and the ensuing estrangement. His comment was, we were sort of on the outs with each other. Then, continued Roy, I had just put up our hay for the winter to come, when one night, as a result of spontaneous combustion, the hay caught fire, burning the hay, the barn, and everything in the right to uh, everything in it right to the ground. I was devastated, said Roy. I didn't know what in the world I would do. The night was dark except for the dying embers of the fire. Then I saw coming toward me from the road, in the direction of Grant Riemann's place, the lights of tractors and heavy equipment. As the rescue party turned in our drive and met me amidst my tears, Grant said, Roy, you've got quite a mess to clean up. My boys and I are here. Let's get to it. Together, they plunged to the task at hand. Gone forever was the hidden wedge which had separated them from a short time. for a short time. They worked throughout the night and into the next day, with many others in the community joining in. Roy Kohler has passed away and Grant Riemann is getting older. Their sons have served together in the same ward, Bishopric, I truly treasure the friendship of these two wonderful families. That was in an April 2002 conference report by President Monson. Living in Midbay myself and having the blessing of uh, raising my family in that community and um, living not far from President Monson's house, this story has uh, lots of significance to me. Now, Ogden and Skinner have written, These people had obviously had a problem with contention. The Savior kept reminding them, There shall be no disputations among you as there have hitherto been. The Lord explained, He that hath the spirit of contention is not of me. It is the devil who stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger. The Spirit of God, on the other hand, promotes unity and harmony. President Henry B. Eyring, then a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, explained, 
Where people have that spirit with them, we may expect harmony. The Spirit puts the testimony of truth in our hearts, which unifies those who share that testimony. The Spirit of God never generates contention. It never generates the feelings of distinctions between people which lead to strife. It leads to personal peace and a feeling of union with others. It unifies souls, a unified family, a unified church. So we read an expanded version of that just a moment ago. Now with respect to contention, finally this from the prophet Joseph Smith. He said, let the elders be exceedingly careful about unnecessarily disturbing and harrowing up the feelings of the people, avoiding contentions and vain disputes with men of corrupt minds who do not desire to know the truth. Remember that it is a day of warning and not a day of many words. If they receive not your testimony in one place, flee to another, remembering to cast no reflections, nor throw out any bitter sayings. If you do your duty, it will be just as well with you as though all men embraced the gospel. Now, as we come into verse 31, the Savior will, now that he has established this mode for establishing truth and saying that contention is not the right method, he now will declare his doctrine. Through the right method, it will come straight from him. Behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, I will declare unto you my doctrine. And this is my doctrine, and it is the doctrine which the Father hath given unto me. And I bear record of the Father, and the Father beareth record of me, and the Holy Ghost beareth record of the Father and me, and I bear record that the Father commandeth all men everywhere to repent and believe in me. And whoso believeth in me and is baptized, the same shall be saved, and they are they who shall inherit the kingdom of God. And whoso believeth not in me and is not baptized shall be damned. There's not a tone of vindictiveness here so much, and I don't think we should read that into it. That is simply the fact that these people did not actuate that, that saving process through their own repentance, even though the way had been opened up to them, and so their way has been damned before them. Verse 35, Verily, verily, I say unto you that this is my doctrine, and I bear record of it from the Father. And whoso believeth in me believeth in the Father also, and unto him will the Father bear record of me. For he will visit him with fire and with the Holy Ghost. Elder Holland has a wonderful way of talking about this doctrine that the Savior is establishing here. He said it is clear at the outset, and and this is out of his book, Christ in the New Covenant. It is clear at the outset that the Sermon in the Book of Mormon is built upon one overwhelmingly important premise that is not so obvious in the New Testament that the doctrines taught and the blessings promised are predicated upon first principles, on saving ordinances and covenants of the gospel, including the baptismal covenant which brings people through the gate to the straight and narrow path leading to eternal life. As Christ taught here, so Nephi taught earlier, that these first principles and ordinances constitute the doctrine of Christ. The Savior stressed such strong recurring themes as the unity of the Godhead, and the need for all disciples to be as little children, but clearly the foundational doctrine of baptism is at the heart of Christ's saving ministry. For he repeated the phrase, my doctrine, particularly as applied to baptism, at least eight times in his unequivocal counsel to the Nephites. So a a very uh, important point here, I think, for us. And we wonder what it is that the Book of Mormon restores now as we move in to 3 Nephi chapters 12, 13, and 14 that correspond with Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and why, why that is repeated here. Of course, it's spoken by a resurrected Lord here, 
uh, as opposed to the mortal Messiah in the New Testament. And there are some other uh, key differences. But one very key difference is simply that of context. The Savior's teaching that he is about to enter into in 3 Nephi 12, 13, and 14, this sermon at the temple that corresponds with his Sermon on the Mount, is anchored in this very clear description of his doctrine and of these first principles of the gate through which one must enter. So a a very important point that's not to be missed, and it helps us to see the continuity of covenants throughout the scriptures, even though that can be difficult sometimes, sometimes to see in the Bible. It is there, and the Book of Mormon restores that notion, always connecting the preaching of the word with the power of ordinances and covenants. Verse 36, And thus will the Father bear record of me, and the Holy Ghost will bear record unto him of the Father and me. For the Father and I and the Holy Ghost are one. And again, I say unto you, ye must repent and become as a little child, and be baptized in my name, or ye can in no wise receive these things. And again, I say unto you, ye must repent and be baptized in my name and become as a little child, or ye can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. So Hebrew parallelism, in a way, is taking place in those two verses, 37 and 38. But this is being spoken by the resurrected Lord, and he says this critical thing twice. Repent. That is the thing that we can do with our own agency. That is the one sacrifice that we can place upon the altar among all possible sacrifices, which uh, makes more sense when we think about the way in which he spoke earlier of a broken heart and a contrite spirit is now what should be laid upon the altar. And he explained that when he spoke to the people in the darkness in 3 Nephi chapter 9. So some commentary here first from Ogden and Skinner, who say, Become as a little child. Elder James E. Talmadge wrote, Christ would not have had his chosen representatives become childish. Far from it. They had to be men of courage, fortitude, and force, but he would have them become childlike. The distinction is important. Those who belong to Christ must become like little children in obedience, truthfulness, trustfulness, purity, humility, and faith. Uh, That's out of Jesus the Christ. Here's a section from a beautiful conference talk by Elder Robert D. Hales with uh, reference to baptism and being baptized in the name of Christ and the things that we promise. At baptism, we make a covenant with our Heavenly Father that we are willing to come into His kingdom and keep His commandments from that time forward, even though we still live in the world. We are reminded from the Book of Mormon that our baptism is a covenant to stand as witnesses of God and His kingdom at all times and in all things and in all places that ye may be in, even until death, that ye may be redeemed of God and be numbered with those of the first resurrection that ye may have eternal life. Uh, He's taking that from Mosiah chapter 18, verse 9. That, of course, is when Alma, the elder, was at the waters of Mormon. When we understand our baptismal covenant, Elder Hales continues, and the gift of the Holy Ghost, it will change our lives and will establish our total allegiance to the kingdom of God. When temptations come our way, if we will listen, the Holy Ghost will remind us that we have promised to remember our Savior and obey the commandments of God. President Brigham Young said, All Latter-day Saints enter the new and everlasting covenant when they enter this church. They covenant to cease sustaining, upholding, and cherishing the kingdom of the devil and the kingdoms of this world. They enter the new and everlasting covenant to sustain the kingdom of God and no other kingdom. They take a vow of the most solemn kind before the heavens and earth that they will sustain truth and righteousness instead of wickedness and falsehood 
and build up the kingdom of God instead of the kingdoms of this world. Entering into the kingdom of God is so important that Jesus was baptized to show us the straightness of the path and the narrowness of the gate by which we should enter. Notwithstanding he being holy, he showeth unto the children of men that according to the flesh he humbleth himself before the Father, and witnesseth unto the Father that he would be obedient unto him in keeping his commandments. So that's an interesting thing to remember at this point, that the Savior himself stood in the water and was immersed in the manner that he's speaking of here, of course, by John the Baptist. Elder Hales continues, Born of a mortal mother, Jesus was baptized to fulfill his Father's commandment that sons and daughters of a God should be baptized. He set the example for all of us to humble ourselves before our Heavenly Father. We are all welcome to come into the waters of baptism. He was baptized to witness to his Father that he would be obedient in keeping his commandments. He was baptized to show us that he would receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. As we follow the example of Jesus, we too demonstrate that we will repent and be obedient in keeping the commandments of our Father in heaven. We humble ourselves with a broken heart and a contrite spirit as we recognize our sins and seek forgiveness of our trespasses. We covenant that we are willing to take upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ and always remember him. For the gate by which ye should enter is repentance and baptism by water, and then cometh the remission of your sins by fire and by the Holy Ghost. And then are ye in the straight and narrow path which leads to eternal life. So that's coming out of Second Nephi chapter 31, verses 17 through 18. This is the promise that we were given when we came into the kingdom through baptism when hands were laid upon our heads. The gift of the Holy Ghost was bestowed upon us, and we were confirmed members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which means we became fellow citizens with the saints in the household of God and should walk in a newness of life. That's a phrase from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. And then later, walking in the newness of life is a phrase that comes from Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Again, that's from Elder Hales from a talk called Covenant of Baptism. Now the Savior continues in verses 39 and 40. Verily, verily, I say unto you that this is my doctrine. And whoso buildeth upon this buildeth upon my rock, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against them. So there it is. This is the doctrine of Christ. This is the solid bedrock upon which you can build. The ground underneath you, you Nephites, has just been liquefied and opened up. But this ground is solid forever, and the gates of hell will not prevail against you if you build upon this ground. Verse 40, And whoso shall declare more or less than this, and establish it for my doctrine, the same cometh of evil, and is not built upon my rock, but he buildeth upon a sandy foundation, and the gates of hell stand open to receive such, when the floods come and the winds beat upon them. The implications there are, are there are a couple implications when the Savior says that. First of all, we can see that this particular edifice that is built upon this sandy foundation actually does stand for a time. It only falls and is received by the gates of hell once the floods come and the winds come. A period of time could transpire conceivably before such floods come and before such winds come. And we see this today all of the time. There are structures, there are churches that are built, there are organizations that are built, there are belief systems that are established that for the moment are standing because they have not yet had to withstand these floods and these winds. That's the first implication. The other is that in verse 40 when he says, Who shall, whoso shall declare more or less than this, he's not saying who shall declare something entirely contrary to this, 
but he's saying, who shall declare more or less than this, implying that his doctrine will be twisted and rested, W-R-E-S-T-E-D, and altered just enough that it may be recognizable, but also interspersed with the philosophies of men, to the point that it may stand for a time, but is then of no use at that critical time when the floods come and the winds beat upon them. And as we have learned, if we have not learned anything else in the last few chapters in the Book of Mormon, the day does come when the tempest comes. The Institute Manual says the phrase, my doctrine, can be found eight times in verses 28 through 40 of 3 Nephi chapter 11. The Lord described his doctrine as repentance and baptism. In similar language in 2 Nephi chapter 31, Nephi spent considerable time describing what he called the doctrine of Christ. Nephi included faith, repentance, baptism, the Holy Ghost, scripture study, and enduring to the end in his list of the doctrines of Christ. And we can think about that in connection with the gate as those fundamental ordinances or first principles, as Elder Holland just called them, and then the path, which is the time in which we endure to the end and our, our fidelity to the covenant is tested, and the word is the key to that fidelity, and then, of course, the ultimate end destination of the tree of life. Now the Institute Manual continues, Later in his visit to the Book of Mormon people, the Lord repeated these same principles in Third Nephi chapter 27, which we'll be able to read, and labeled them my gospel. These principles remind us of Articles of Faith uh, number four. Uh, We believe that the first principles and ordinances of the gospel are, first, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, second, repentance, third, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, fourth, laying out of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. As to the gates of hell, this very interesting phrase that we just read, uh, Hugh Nibley has written, the gates of hell then does not refer to the devil at all, Though his snares and wiles might lead men sooner or later to their death, delivering them to the destruction of the flesh, his power ends there. The gates of hell are the holding back of those who are in the spirit world from attaining the object of their desire. Baptism for the dead, then, was the key to the gates of hell which no church claimed to possess until the 19th century, the gates remaining inexorably closed against those very dead of whose salvation the early Christians had been so morally certain. Now we come to this final piece in this transcendent chapter in verse 41, where the Lord, now that he has taught his doctrine thoroughly to these people, and he has done all he has done and said all as he has said, he then charges them to act in his stead and go and do thou likewise. He says it in this way in verse 41, Therefore, go forth unto this people and declare the words which I have spoken unto the ends of the earth. What was the prerequisite for them to go forth and speak unto the ends of the earth? Well, it was for them to behold him and to verify his identity. It was then for them to be, uh, um, it was then for them to enter into a covenant relationship with him through baptism. And it was for all of this to be done through the auspices of his priesthood. Uh, that's what precedes this going forth and declaring the words. Those are all of the same things that happened at the beginning of this dispensation, which shows that the, that the the Savior is back in a very real way when we think about his coming back to the earth. Well, he is back in the sense that his church is back. We are living in that time, and if we wonder what it's going to be like when he does return, well, in a very real way he has. He did come back to Joseph and the son introduced him there. Uh, something marvelous on, the, on the, the scale of what we're reading of here in 3 Nephi 11 did happen in a grove of trees to Joseph. And 
In this way, Jesus is back. Jesus the Christ has returned to the earth in the form of his church. And of course, the time will come then when he will appear to the whole world. Well, here's some final commentary from Ogden and Skinner. Jesus defined and elaborated on exactly what his doctrine is. For clarity and emphasis, he repeated three times, this is my doctrine. His doctrine is simple. Believe in him, which is faith. Return to him, which is repentance. And immerse ourselves in him, which is baptism. And be guided by him, which by implication is through the Holy Ghost. So there are those first four principles and ordinances found in the way in which the Savior describes his doctrine here in 3 Nephi 11. Anything more or less than this cometh of evil. In other words, it can be dangerous to go beyond the pure and powerful doctrine he has given and on which the missionaries always focus in helping others to become genuinely converted. Keep it pure and simple. Doing that, we are building on his rock, that is, on him. And the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Have you ever thought about the gates of hell? It is curious how many times the Lord refers to them. In 35 chapter 18, verse 13, he warns that the gates of hell are ready open to receive you. These days, the gates of hell are pornography, aberrant sexual relationships, selfishness, greed, pride, and other forms of severe worldliness. These gates of hell are gaping wide open to swallow up anyone who gets close enough and is spiritless enough to be snatched. Knowing and living the Lord's doctrine is absolutely urgent in order to escape the current bombardment of worldliness surrounding us. The doctrine of Christ, including his principles, ordinances, and covenants, becomes our shield and protection against the powers of darkness. This doctrine, Christ says, must be declared unto the ends of the earth, which is a phrase that comes out of Doctrine and Covenants 112, verse 4, as well as, as it does, of course, right here in verse 41. The phrase, the ends of the earth, appears 59 times in Scripture. The Lord emphasizes that his word shall hiss forth unto the ends of the earth. The gospel shall roll forth unto the ends of the earth, out of Doctrine and Covenants 65. The revelations, including great and glorious tidings, are extended to the ends of the earth. There are references after each of these statements. The voice of the Lord is unto the ends of the earth. Uh, This promise... The covenant is unto all, even unto the ends of the earth, as it will say in Mormon chapter 9, verse 21. Salvation is unto the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 13 says that, as does 1 Nephi chapter 21, verse 6. All of the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. Uh, Many verses use that phrase. Describing the scope of the great Latter-day Gathering, Doctrine and Covenants section 58, verse 45, says they shall push the people together from the ends of the earth. And speaking to the prophet Joseph Smith, the Lord declared, The ends of the earth shall inquire after thy name. Through his prophets, the Lord has commanded, Repent, all ye ends of the earth, calling on the people far and wide over the whole length and breadth of the earth to repent and return to him. Uh, This is in 3 Nephi chapter 27. It's expressed that way in Ether chapter 4 and Moroni 7. Mormon said, I write unto all the ends of the earth in Mormon chapter 3 verse 18 meaning to all the people who live throughout the earth. I would that I could persuade all ye ends of the earth, he will later say, desiring to convince and convert souls to the far-flung reaches of the globe. To the ends of the earth also means to every corner of the earth. Joseph Smith admonished, don't let a single corner of the earth go without a mission. Anyone who, uh, that's out of history of the church, by the way, when Joseph said that, Anyone who watches the hand of the Lord move throughout the earth will testify that his words, his glad tidings, the revelations of salvation, the new and everlasting covenant, meaning the fullness of the gospel, are indeed penetrating to the farthest reaches of this planet. 
In the Western Hemisphere, for example, the names of Jesus Christ and Joseph Smith are known and loved to the northernmost stake of the church in Fairbanks, Alaska, with its northernmost branch in North Shore. That's right, I've seen that northernmost branch and have been there in Barrow, Alaska. (laughs) And to the southernmost stake of the church in Punta Arenas, Chile, with its southernmost branch in Porto Williams. So that is the tone that the Savior takes as he comes to the end of this chapter, 3 Nephi chapter 11, uh, once again giving the people who have had this singular experience, this unique experience that so few have ever been able to have in their mortal journey, these people are able to have that experience. And so they are charged with this thing in verse 41, go forth unto this people and declare the words which I have spoken unto the ends of the earth. Our charge today is most certainly similar because we also have the singular and unique opportunity of living in the dispensation of the fullness of times. So it it is our charge as well to go forth unto this people and uh, to do so having been authorized and having been baptized. And uh, we too have the privilege of having the Savior's identity verified to us. We can know no better then than we know now of his reality and divinity And when he appears to these Nephites at this time, there he is before them, but he has been there the entire time, and so it is for each of us. Well, many wonderful things are to come here. Now that we have arrived to this point in the Book of Mormon, as we go through the Savior's ministry in each of these chapters, for now, of course, this brings us to the end of 3 Nephi chapter 11. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives, and most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.